Revelation chapter 1. I was, it was suggested to me before Christmas that we do a, a series on suffering. And um, I guess I've been threatening it for about four or five weeks. I've been mentioning every week that this, this is coming. Um, it's something that I knew exactly where I wanted to start, and that's where I'm starting this morning. And after a lot of wrestling and thinking and a few discussions um, of a fair idea where we're going uh, in this, this is going to be probably reasonably long in terms, not this morning's okay, but in terms of, this could run six or eight weeks. This is a massive, massive issue, a really huge issue. It's one of the most difficult issues for Christians to actually get their head around. Um, it's an issue that does cause a lot of people to look at Christianity and say, you've no answer to this, and therefore I don't want anything to do with you. I can't believe that there is a God who is good. Um, so some people use it or hold it as a barrier or an excuse even to not come to faith. So I'm taking this exceptionally seriously this morning and for the next couple of months. I'm trembling in, in, in just in my posture because this is such a, a massive topic. I do believe Table as a church is entering a period of maturing. Uh, I believe as a church we're going to grow up a lot over the next few months um, in our faith, in our relationships, in our attitudes. And I believe as we talk about suffering, we're going on a journey to the very heart of God because we have a God who knows a thing or two about suffering. And whenever people ever... you know, club the, the question at him, you know, what do you know about what I'm going through or, or why do you not care about suffering? He can point to a place in history where there was suffering that is, is beyond our understanding. He knows about suffering. So as we go to this topic, we're going to his very heart. Um, and you will come to the start of something like this with questions. And whenever I'm done, you'll still have questions, Okay. This is not, we're not in a position here just to be able to give trite, trivial answers to, to some of the big questions that we have. Um, we will address them, we will skirt around them, we will not shy away from them, but we're, we're not going to give answers that God has not given us authority to give answers to. And ultimately, do you know what you need? You don't need answers. I remember listening to Rick Watts, who I listen to an awful lot, as you know, and remember him talking one time about a conversation he had with a guy who was arguing with him about faith and about Christianity and whether there was anything to it. And, and he wanted to know answers. And you know what? Whenever there is a time that comes that you come face to face with death and that you come face to face with God, you will not need answers at that point. You will need life. You will need a life within you that is greater than death. Not answers about where the dinosaurs came from, who Cain's wife was, or why people suffer. What you will need at that point is life, not answers. It's good to have questions and it's good to go to God with our questions, but we have to trust him at times when we don't get the answers that we want. The book of Revelation was written to a people who were suffering hugely. Um, to give you an example, seeing as the kids aren't in, uh, Nero, Emperor Nero of Rome would have garden parties and there were obviously no electric lights for his garden. And in order to provide light for his garden, he would grab a few Christians out of his prison and bring them to his garden to provide light. 
Now, they did not walk around the garden holding burning torches. He dipped them in oil. He tied them to posts around his garden and he set them on fire. And they provided the light for his guests as they went around and had their finger food at the garden party. So we're talking about intense persecution of of God's people. The whole book of Revelation is written to a suffering church. And I want you to see how John starts it, or in fact, how Jesus starts it. If you want a tip about reading the book of Revelation, here's here's a statistic that will help you understand what you need to do if you want to really get to grips with this book. There are 404 verses in Revelation. There are 518 references to the Old Testament. So if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you need to know the story of the people of God in the Old Testament. The more you know that, the more you will understand Revelation. You don't need charts and fancy teachers. You need to know the Old Testament to get to grips with this book. I want to start reading in in chapter 1. I want to read verses 9 to 11. And then I'm going to read a little bit more later on. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. John is is one of the 12 disciples. He was one who was particularly close to Jesus and wrote the Gospel of John. And he is exiled on this island. When it says there that he was on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God, it doesn't mean he was at a conference. He hadn't gone away with lots of Christian leaders for a nice weekend of food and comfort and, and, and for, to, to talk about the word. When he's, he's on the island for the word of God, it means he'd been exiled there. He had been sent there as punishment. Some people were sent to prison. Some people were executed. Others were banished to islands and basically sent to live on the island. They couldn't get off it. And some of them maybe had to do slave labor, whatever. But this was the punishment that John had faced because of his preaching about Jesus And I love the way he introduces himself. He says, I'm John, your brother. And and listen to this phrase, because I'm going to take a Sunday morning at some stage in the the next couple of weeks and look at this. He introduces himself in verse 9 to these churches that he's writing to. This is a letter. Revelation is a letter being sent to churches. And he says, I am your companion in suffering. That's class. What does that mean? What does that actually mean? And how... One of the things, like, let, let's not obsess ourselves with, with some of the questions that we know we can't get answers to, like, why is there evil? Why, you know, we, will, we will look at some of those things, but you know what I would like you to be more obsessed with? How can I be a companion in suffering? If I know someone that's suffering, how can I be a companion? I want to look at that some morning. He introduces himself as a companion in suffering and kingdom with these people. Two aspects of the Christian life, suffering and kingdom. Kingdom can also be translated sovereignty, suffering and sovereignty of God. And he says in verse 9 that these things are ours in Jesus. In other words, suffering is to be expected for those who follow Jesus. 
It was what he endured, and we can expect nothing less. And if people come and hear a gospel that when you come to Jesus, all life's problems will go away, and everything will just be tip-top and hunky-dory and fine, that is not the gospel. In Acts, the apostles said to the, the early converts, they said, through many hardships, you will enter the kingdom of God. They didn't say everything's going to be just tip-top and dandy-o and all your problems are going to evaporate overnight. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, there are going to be hardships, many hardships that you will have to endure to enter the kingdom of God. And it's the Lord's day in, when, whenever John is writing this. That was probably Sunday. That was resurrection day. Every month, these people would have celebrated something called Emperor's Day, where they would have worshipped the Emperor of Rome. But John and the followers of Jesus had the Lord's Day every week to celebrate the resurrection. And it says that he is in the Spirit. I don't know exactly what that means, but it probably means at least he was in prayer. He was in worship. He was seeking God, and I believe John, John's a pastor. He's a leader in the church. He probably has responsibility for the seven churches that are listed there in verse 11, and I believe he's praying for them when all of this happens. It's Sunday morning, and he's worshiping, and he's praying, and he's asking Jesus to help these people that are suffering. This is all coming in the context of suffering. And he's saying, Lord, will you help the Christians at Smyrna who are being persecuted and being executed because they follow you? Will you help them? Will you do something, Lord, that will help them in their suffering? So I believe he's crying out to God for these churches. And the response that he gets is maybe not what we would expect. He doesn't get answers. He doesn't get tactics. He doesn't get a sort of six-message series to go and preach to them, to help them in their suffering. What he gets first and foremost in Revelation 1 is a revelation of Jesus. Now, I want you to get this, and if you get nothing else, you lay hold on this today and you hold tight to it. The thing that people who are suffering, the thing that they need more than anything else is a massive vision of a sovereign God. That is what they need first and foremost. Before you start to ask the questions and ponder things and try to think things through, first and foremost, what is required is a huge vision of who Jesus is. Unshakable. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we work through the next few verses in this chapter. What will Jesus do in response to this prayer? How will he reveal himself? What is the Jesus that suffering people need to see? Because Jesus, we see many different pictures of him as we read the New Testament. We see him as a shepherd tending his flock. We see him as a kind Christ holding little children who were insignificant in those days. We see him as a tragic Christ nailed to the cross. We see him as a compassionate Christ touching the leper. We see him as a thoughtful Christ engaging with the religious scholars. How will he reveal himself on this occasion to help those who are suffering? What's he going to look like? Is he going to appear with a lamb? Is he going to appear with a child? Is he going to appear uh, with, with, with thoughts and ideas? I want you to see what way he reveals himself in the, in the next few verses. I'm going to read verses 12 to 16. And I want your imagination to run wild. That's what you're meant to do in Revelation. Your imagination is meant to have an absolute field day. Just flipping, running all over the place. Whenever John tries to describe what he sees... I, can, I, can, I almost laugh at him in a respectful sort of way because he's really struggling for language 
to describe this Jesus that he sees. In verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, do you see them? Get plugged in. Do you see them? John's maybe on the beach. I don't know if there's a beach or not, or rocks and Patmos or what it was like. But he turns, he hears a voice, he turns around, and he sees seven lampstands. And among them, in verse 13, stands someone like a son of man. Do you see him? He's dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Do you see him? His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So John turns around and he sees the lampstands and he sees this figure. And the one that is revealed to him, the way Jesus reveals himself, John describes him in verse 13 as being like a son of man. And if you know the Old Testament, that is referring to Daniel chapter 7. Let me, let me read it and if you have a Bible, go to it so I can hear the pages. Daniel chapter 7. So you can see where this language comes from. Son of man does not just mean a human being. It means so much more than that. It was Jesus' favorite term for himself in the Gospels when he talked to people and he wanted to describe himself. He called himself the Son of Man. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, what's happened in Daniel 7 is Daniel sees these kingdoms rising. One after another, these kingdoms rise. And they represent the ancient powers of Babylon and Assyria and Greece and Rome, all rising one after another. But then he sees something more. It says in verse 9, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days, that's God, took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and his hair was white like wool. His throne was a flaming was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. Look at verse 13. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. This is the one that John saw in Revelation. One like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. When John says, I turned around and I saw the lampstands and I saw somebody in the middle of them that looked like a son of man, that's what he looked like. He looked like the one who had given or who had gained all authority, all power, and whose kingdom would never pass away. That's what John saw. Hold in your mind that he's writing to suffering people. And he is sending them this picture of Jesus that he sees on Patmos. This towering figure. Not a corpse in a grave. Not a half dead man hanging on a cross. Not a baby in a manger. Not a gentle shepherd. Not a carpenter. He sees the son of man. 
Jesus as he now is, is what John sees. And just think about how there is, you know, I've written down the word incongruous here and I'm trying to think of how to define it. Think of how this, this picture of Jesus does not sit with what we see him doing in the Gospels. Because this is a king, but he acts like a slave. This is the son of man who has all authority, yet he has lunch with a tax collector. He has dinner with a prostitute. He blesses insignificant children. He heals losers. He ignores high-achieving religious scholars. And he hangs pierced and bleeding on a cross. This is our Jesus. He is the son of man. He is a king and yet acts like a slave. And I want you to note where he is. He's among the lampstands. I hazard a guess that some of you have an idea in your head that Jesus is way, way up there looking down on his church. Or that Jesus is maybe outside peering in through the window at his church. But he wouldn't lower himself to actually be in the midst of his church among dirty brutes like us and all the things that we say and do and the way we act. But John sees him in the midst. He sees the seven churches that, that are listed here. He sees them represented as seven lampstands. Those are the seven churches. And Jesus is right in the middle of his church. There, he's not embarrassed to associate with me. He's not ashamed to be right in the midst of his people, despite our failings and our mistakes. He's not compromised by association with us. Get away from your mind the idea that Jesus is a million miles away off in some distant heaven that's away beyond the stars. Because if this is true, he's here this morning in the midst of his people and everywhere where his people are gathered. If this is true, he's here. And it's precisely here that he, that he chooses to reveal himself. Jesus reveals himself to the world through his church, through you and me. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. He loves to use broken things. When he was born, he was put in an animal's feeding trough. And in the moment of his greatest glory, he's actually being pinned to a cross. So we should not be surprised that this glorious king, this risen Lord, would then be happy to reveal himself through broken people like us. He is in the midst of his church. He will be revealed to the world through his church. If you're sitting thinking somebody else will do it, they won't. <laughs> no one will show Tandragee what Jesus looks like apart from the people of God who live in this town. No one else will do it. No big hitting American prophet is going to come. <laughs> and if we don't show them what Jesus is like, they will never know. He's wearing robes that go down to his feet in verse 13. This is the garment of a priest. Don't be thinking of Father Ted or Dougal or any of them. Not the sort of priest we're talking about. A priest, the Latin word for priest is a pontifex. It means bridge. A priest stands as a bridge between man and God and between God and man. That's what a priest does. He brings together what was previously separated. And the Jesus that John sees on Patmos that morning is the one who brings God to us in our suffering and brings us to God in our suffering, who never stops night and day, never stops interceding for us before God. He mentions our names before God continually. He is the bridge between us and God. 
And one of the things that the priests did in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, the priest would look after the lampstand. The lampstand where these candles or these wicks were burning, the priest's job was to look after it and make sure everything was okay. And the picture is that Jesus is in the midst of his church, tending to his church. He's not a million miles away, folks, with something more important to do. He's in the midst of his church. And the belt or the golden sash, I'm glad it's golden, the golden sash around his chest. Some, some Bible says girdle, which is probably even worse. It's a golden sash around, around his chest. Whenever the priest was going to, to work, when he was going up to the temple to do his work of sacrifice, he would wear the belt around his waist, the sash around his waist. And people who saw him knew he's going to the temple, he's going to offer sacrifices. Whenever he had done the day's sacrifices in the temple and he had brought everything to God that he needed to bring to God, he would loosen the belt, he would move it up to his chest and he would tie it around his chest and walk home. And if you saw the priest with the belt up around his chest, that was saying the work of sacrifice has been completed. So whenever John sees Jesus with this belt around his chest, he knows that this priest has done the work of sacrifice. He has made the sacrifice for our sins. In verse 14, he is pure. We see that his hair is in his head is white. Speaking of purity, white as snow, white like wool. And we think back to whenever Isaiah said in the Old Testament that our sins are like scarlet. The things that we have done before God are are bright and hideous, but he will make us white as snow. He is pure. And in verse 14 as well, it says that his eyes are burning like fire. He's not only pure, but he will purify anyone who comes to him. These are eyes that look right through you. Jesus doesn't look at you. He looks into you. He looks into you with those burning eyes. And it's not just to see what's going on and expose you. It's to, it's to burn it up and get rid of it. And many of you, and, and, and me included, we come regularly to God with heart issues that we're ashamed of. Things that we've said or just, just as somebody has irritated us and there's just been, even though we haven't said anything out loud, just this response in our mind, this instinctive irritation. And we're ashamed that we think like that. And he comes with these burning eyes to look into our hearts and to burn up just that garbage that we know we don't want. He is pure and he is purifying. And I love his feet. <laughs> Sounds a bit weird. You're getting carried away, David, you know, talking about loving Jesus' feet. Just love him and not his feet. I love his feet. It says his feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. And without going back to it, there's a, this is alluding back to, again, the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And again, in his dream, he sees all the kingdoms lining up one after another in the shape of a statue. And when he looks at the feet of the statue, they are made out of iron mixed with clay. Now, iron doesn't mix with clay. Anything that is on a base... Think about the angel of the north. Have you ever seen the angel of the north in, in Gateshead and Newcastle? This big, massive sculpture that's on a roundabout in the middle of nowhere. It looks like a plane that's just nosedived straight into the ground. Some huge statue. 
the balls and the falls, whatever it is that you can think of as a big structure, you would not put it on a base that is made of iron mixed with clay. Couldn't support it. It would break. It would fall apart. And in, in Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, all of these kingdoms that, that will come, Babylon and Greece and Rome, and maybe beyond that, the superpowers of our day, he says, they, are, they look splendid and they look glorious, but their, their, their foundation is weak and they will not stand. All these kingdoms are on feet of clay mixed with iron. And as soon as anything hits them, they will be forgotten about. They will topple over. But you look at the feet of Jesus. They're made of bronze. Now, bronze is an alloy. And an alloy is a mixture, in this case, of two metals. Now, it's a mixture of iron and copper. Iron is strong. But the problem with iron is it rusts. Copper doesn't rust, but copper is malleable, which means it's bendy. So that's no good. But when you take iron and copper together and you make bronze, bronze will not rust. It will endure. That's what the copper brings to the bronze. It brings endurance. It will last. It will not corrode. And what the iron brings to the mix is strength. And when we see Jesus with feet of bronze, what we're seeing is a king who will not be shaken, who will not topple over no matter what hits him. He won't even wobble. Can you imagine having bronze shoes on? He won't even wobble. He won't even be sort of taken by surprise by something and have a wee shake and then steady himself again. He will not be shaken. Nothing takes him by surprise. And unlike the other kingdoms of the world, And I don't just mean nations and superpowers, but the things that people look at and put their trust in and idolize and worship, all of those things are on feet of clay. They will crumble and fall. Who was the hottest celebrity two years ago? Are they still the hottest celebrity? I doubt it. All of these things crumble and fall. But this kingdom does not move, does not shake. And sometimes when I am praying, and I talked to you last week about my, sometimes my posture in prayer is a bit odd and I'll get down on my knees and I'll even get on my face and sometimes I even put my hands out in front of me and I pretend that I am laying hold on his feet because he will not move. And if I am laying hold on him, I will not move. And what suffering people need to see is a Jesus who is unshakable. And the next thing that we hear about this vision that John sees is about his voice. And you know, John is, is reaching for, for metaphors here. And he says his voice is like many waters. You think, big deal. You go down to the river today and you listen to it. It's not that loud. But think Niagara Falls. All right? Think big water. Fast moving water. Think tidal waves hitting rocks. That's what we're talking about. Remember that John... He can only reach for what he knows to describe this. He cannot say his voice sounded like the Falcon Heavy rocket taking off. He he doesn't have that that illustration to go for. What does he have? He's, He's on an island and he hears the waves banging against the rocks and he says the voice was like rushing waters, like the voice of God. 
He doesn't say at this point what Jesus says. He just tell, talks about the tone of voice. Can I digress for a wee minute and just say something? And I don't mean to sound like an, an old guy giving off. We've got to be so careful with digital messaging because there's no tone of voice. There's no look in the eye. There's no smile. There's no sarcasm. We've got to be so careful how we communicate. Our voice is as important as what we are actually saying. John describes Jesus' voice, what it's like before he goes into the detail of what he says. And, you know, these things are wildly convenient. I use them many times every day. So does everybody. But see, folks, when it's something serious, don't do it. Because it just doesn't convey what you actually mean many times. This awesome voice of Jesus. In verse 16, we have the only illustration or the only description that doesn't actually come from the Old Testament. It says that in his hand, he's got seven stars. Now, in the ancient world, astrology was a big deal. And still is today, probably. People skating the newspapers and looking to see what horoscopes and things say. And in the ancient world, they believed that there were seven stars or seven planets And if they looked at how those planets were arranged against the rest of the sky, that would affect your destiny. And nowadays people look at that and they allow it to affect what sort of day they think they're going to have. And Jesus shows up and says, do you see those seven stars that you think control your destiny? I hold them in my right hand. I control them. (laughs) They don't control you. I control them. This is his power and his majesty. It says that that a sword is coming out of his mouth. Now, please, don't be thinking of this as literal. If you approach the book of Revelation and every image has to be literal, you're going to be in trouble. Reuben, have you ever seen a lamb with seven eyes? Not likely to, okay? The the imagery is meant to cause your mind to, to just run all over the place. When it says that a sharp sword is coming out of his mouth, it means that his word is effective, strong, powerful. Mighty in battle, not against just his enemies, but against his people as well, who occasionally need to be on the receiving end of his word. Regularly need to be on the receiving end of his word. His word is effective, and his face is shining like the sun. (coughs) Shining in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. This is an incredible picture of Jesus. I worry about a generation sort of between about 18 and 35 in the church. And Jesus is their buddy. He's their mate. And you can tell very quickly that he's their mate. That there's no respect. There's no awe of him. And we need to have awe of this one. And we need to have a posture in front of him, like John in verse 17 that I haven't read yet. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I know Christians in their 20s and I feel that if they saw Jesus, they'd say, what about you, mate? (laughs) Or something stupid like that. They don't know him at all. John falls at his feet in a posture of worship. Knowing Jesus leads to worship. And the same 
hand that holds those seven stars. John then feels his hand on him at the end of verse 17. Picture yourself again, the whole scene on the on the island of Patmos and you see the seven lampstands and you see Jesus and you're struggling to describe him and you just fall on your face in a heap and you don't know what's going to happen. Am I going to get incinerated here? Am I going to get burnt to a crisp for some, something that I did or something that I said? And what he, what he feels is he feels a hand on his shoulder. And you can picture yourself as John on the floor and, and as he looks around to look at the hand on the shoulder, he sees the, the wound whether it was the hand or the wrist or whatever, he sees the wound in the hand. And he hears Jesus say in verse 17, and this is the start of a series on suffering, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, how can you say that you know, what qualifies Jesus to say that? Somebody could, could get up and, and, and just shout back at him and say, how can, you, how can you tell me not to be afraid, Jesus? How can you have the audacity to say, don't be afraid? Do you not know that at any moment I could be taken out of prison, dipped in oil, taken into Caesar's garden and set on fire? Do you not know that at any moment I could get thrown to the lions? When you read about the churches in, in Revelation, they're being slandered and persecuted and false teachers are coming in and there's all sorts of confusion. How can you tell us not to be afraid, Jesus? That's, you know, that's really not that big a deal. How, how can you obey this command? Because to, to tell someone to not be afraid, now listen to me, to tell someone to not be afraid is a command. He doesn't say there's nothing to be afraid of. We sometimes say that to people. We just sort of wheel out, there's, there's not, don't be afraid, there's nothing to be afraid of. Jesus doesn't say there's nothing to be afraid of. There's a lot to be afraid of. There's any amount to be afraid of. Jesus says, don't be afraid. What qualifies Jesus to talk like this? Because not everyone can talk like this. There's got to be something. You know, John has got to come back to Jesus and say, I know you can say, don't be afraid, but what have you got, Jesus, that will allow me to not be afraid? And Jesus goes on in verse 17 to say, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I am the first and the last and everything in between. Uh, in, earlier in, in verse 8, he said, I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the A and the Z and everything in between. And what he says to John is, is in, in verse 18, I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. If you've never caught the power of the word behold before, you need to catch it. It means look at me. That's what it means. Look at me. If you have a Bible, you don't mind scribbling on it, underline the word behold and right beside it, look at me. Do you understand that's another command? That is another command. Look at me. You want, there are two commands in this passage. There's the command, do not be afraid. There's the command, look at me. You obey the first command by obeying the second one. When you look at him, you will be able to not be afraid. When you behold his majesty and his glory and who he is and you see that he is the living one who was dead and is alive forevermore 
Aaron read earlier from Romans chapter 6. In my Bible it says, death has no mastery over him. Death has no mastery over him. And a lot of you are quite young and death is not in your thinking at all. But at some stage it will be. Death has no mastery over him. Don't be afraid. He says, I have walked into the jaws of death willingly. And I came back out again. The way I have often pictured this, because he says he holds the keys. And I've often thought of like a a scene in in a cowboy film where you have like the sheriff's uh, office and you have his, he has a couple of jail cells in the office and he's got John Wayne or somebody else locked up in a prison and somehow he breaks out while the sheriff is asleep usually or something like that. He gets the door open and he breaks out and as he walks out he looks at the bunch of keys hanging on the wall and with a smile on his face he goes over and he lifts them and spins them around his finger and walks out the door into the sunlight. And I can imagine Jesus doing that. I can imagine not only going into that prison house of death, but as he breaks loose from it again and walks out, he lifts the bunch of keys. And he says, never again will anyone be put in here without my sovereign will. I will let people in. I will bring people out again. I hold the keys. The ultimate fear that these people had was the fear of death. And Jesus said, do not be afraid because I've got the keys of death. I've been there and I'm back again. No one else can say that. Muhammad can't say that. Buddha can't say that. No other person who puts themselves in a position to be followed can say that. Jesus can say it. Don't be afraid of what happened in your past. Don't be afraid of what might happen in your future. He holds the keys. And John then gets up. And John has a message. He's told in verse 19, write it down. You see, people talk lightly about having visions. A vision of Jesus will always result in a task, movement, change. A message. It will never just be some wee thing. You sit with your feet up in the armchair and think, oh, I had this revelation of Jesus. I had a dream about Jesus. And it always provokes action and response. Always. And John is up on his feet with a message now and a glorious vision of Christ to bring to these churches who are suffering. When he fell on his knees, he was a prisoner. And when he got up again, he was a pastor. And he had something from the very heart of God to bring and to tell these people. And in verse in chapters 2 and 3, he goes on to dictate messages from Jesus to every church. And to everyone at the end of each message, at the end of each letter, it says, To him who overcomes. And it's a bad translation. It should say, to him who conquers. It's got more force to it than just overcoming. To him who conquers. Every one of these seven letters, I'm not going to go through them obviously, but every one of them starts off with something from the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. Go to Ephesus, let them know that I hold the seven stars. Go to Smyrna, let them know that I am the first and the last. Go to Pergamum and let them know that I have the sharp double-edged sword. Every church get some aspect of this revelation of Jesus. And at the end, there is this call to conquer. The way you conquer 
is by seeing Him. It's not by praying harder or reading more or going to more meetings or trying to be better. It is by holding this Jesus in front of you. This is my Jesus. This is my Jesus. I love all that He has done, but if you were to ask me to try and draw a picture, which I wouldn't do, but paint a picture or or, or visualize what is Jesus like now, I'm going here day in, day out. This is my King. He cannot be shaken. He has conquered death, and He empowers us by giving us a revelation of Himself to conquer also. The first priority for those who are suffering is that they see King Jesus in all his risen, death-conquering, sovereign glory. And can I just throw a question at you? If you don't follow him wholeheartedly, why not? Can you tell me what you have found that's better? Because if you find something better, I leave this book here, And I'll go with you to whatever you find that's better. If you're not following him, why not? Seriously, what do you think will sustain you? Have you found something else with feet of bronze? Have you found someone else who holds the seven stars? Have you found someone else who walked into death and walked out again and brought the keys with them and now controls the whole shooting match? What have you found that is better than this? Tell me afterwards and I'm there with you. Let's pray as Aaron comes up.